Hey, it's Kathy. I have something so fun to tell you about. You may know that the doors are open to my new program, The Abundance Method, but if you enroll by May 15th at 11.59 p.m. Pacific, you're going to get my signature business program also made to do this. That's a $3,000 program that you are going to get for free included if you sign up by May 15th, just before midnight Pacific time. Made to do this is a phenomenal program that has helped thousands of souls to start businesses, to be able to make a living doing something that they love. This is an incredible deal. You don't want to miss it. Go ahead and sign up at kathyheller.com slash join. If you do take those detours, don't feel shame about it. Don't feel like you have screwed up your life. Maybe you're actually doing the best thing for your life. I found that all the things I wasn't supposed to do have led me to where I am supposed to be. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. This show is meant to be a guide for you. We're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day, that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful? What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are? How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life. And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people. It will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the podcast. Today is such a fun conversation, and I know I say very often that these conversations are fun and interesting, but this one is like listening to a conversation between me and a very good friend because Laura Belgray is here, and she is indeed a very good friend. But it's kind of like being a fly on the wall when I am just totally myself and with somebody that I'm extremely comfortable with, and we just kind of talk about everything. So not only did I enjoy doing this interview as I always do. But after we got off, Laura and I were both saying to each other, oh my God, can we just always do that? Can that just be what we do? Or we just talk to each other and that's the whole podcast every episode because you'll kind of get the feeling for it. But I think you'll really enjoy today's episode. Laura Belgray has been here before, but she has a new book out and it's amazing. It's called Tough Titties. It's a memoir. It's essays about her life and it's just so illuminating. You're going to love it. So um, I'm excited to dive in. If you don't know Laura Belgray, she's the founder of Talking Shrimp. She's co-creator of The Copy Cure with Marie Forleo. She's an award-winning copywriter. She's a TV writer who's written for Bravo, FX, NBC, HBO. And now 
She is an official author. Her new book, Tough Titties on Living Your Best Life When You're the Effing Worst, is coming out tomorrow, and you guys, you must go get it. It's a hilarious collection of full-body cringe, watch-through-your-fingers life lessons her own husband calls Loser Sex in the City. She includes totally relatable coming-of-age stories like hate following her sixth-grade bully on social media decades later, measuring her self-worth in hookups with Upper West Side bartenders, and most of all, saying tough titties to those things that we think we're supposed to do in life. This book will not only make you cry tears of laughter, but it will also help you to drop the shame of feeling like you're a late bloomer or like you're a hot mess. And it's going to give you encouragement to follow your own authentic path. If you heard the other episodes with Laura, then you will know that she always makes me laugh and she's just such a dream guest. You will love her. Without further ado, please welcome the hilarious and incredible Laura Belgray. Laura Belgray, I'm so happy that you're back. I feel like there's like an award on Saturday Night Live for like most, uh, you know, the person who's hosted the most. I think you, you've been a guest more than anybody else. That is the highest honor ever. I love being on your show. I mean, it's basically because I love hanging out with you. So I'll Thanks. just do it on camera and on the mic. That's Any- such a compliment. I remember when we first connected and I thought you're literally the coolest person. And I'm so happy you wrote this book, Tough Titties, because everyone's going to know now that you are the coolest person. (laughs) You are the person that in the movie, this is like such a retro thing to say, but in the John Hughes movie, Weird Science, where they like create their ideal woman, Kelly LeBron. I feel like any woman who wants to create their ideal best friend would create you. Like you are the coolest person. Like you're the most real down to earth, funny clever, smart, high vibe human being that I know. Thank you so much. That is so kind of you. And also ironic because I feel like the book reveals how very uncool I am, like how uncool, how profoundly uncool I've been throughout my life. So there's that. I think it's, (laughs) and we're going to get into it now, but I think for anybody who's listening, If you were the person who wasn't cool in middle school, you for sure became the coolest person as an adult. I'm pretty sure Larry David was not the coolest person in seventh grade, but boy, (laughs) did he turn out to be. So I think you're in a long line of very truly (laughs) cool people who didn't peak in eighth grade. Thank you. No, I mean, and we have that in common. I know we have tortured middle school stories in common. Yeah. Yeah. So I read the beginning of this book because I've been so, so busy, but just the beginning of this book, I'm, and I said to you as soon as I even knew of it, but I'm just reading this book and I'm like, this book can be everything it wants to be. It could be the best television series. It can be <laughs> a series of what's going to be another amazing five book. Like all I want to do is keep reading and know you more and hear your voice and the way you voice life. That's all I can say is it's addictive. So what made you write it? I mean, I feel like you were already successful living your nice life. You know, you have a career, but then you're like, no, I need to write this sort of essay compilation of, of all these quirky (laughs) things that have happened to me. What made you want to do that? Well, cause as you know, writing a book is just so easy. Why not? I'm kidding. (laughs) It's a very good question. What made me write it? I have always wanted to write a book. And have started it, 
announced it to groups of people throughout the years. I mean, there's a time I can remember in 2003 at a birthday party telling everyone, hey, everyone, I'm writing a book. And I guess I thought it would like hold me accountable announcing it publicly. And I didn't write the book. I've just started it and stopped in so many different forms, iterations, themes. But I've always had these stories about my life that I wanted to tell. And there was one time in around 2016, because I've been talking about it for a long time. In 2016, I went to my regular dance class and somebody joined me who's in like in the space. She's a writer. Her name is Alex Franzen. And she's written a lot of books and a lot of little books. And she helps people write books. And she was in New York and wanted to join me. And I remember sitting on the floor with her and we were like stretching, just hanging out before class. And she said, so tell me this. Do you have a body of work? And I was like, body <laughs> of work. Um, I have, I guess, blog posts I've written and I eat a lot of emails. I guess if you put them together, they would be a body of work. But I felt such like uh, disappointment in myself that I hadn't yet done my thing because this was sort of hanging over me all these years. And I think what stopped me from writing it was I didn't know how it would end. It's essentially a memoir. And I kind of, I wanted it to be a memoir of how I, how I overcame all the um, self-sabotaging habits that I have, how I overcame laziness, how I overcame fear and perfectionism and being behind. And that never really happened. I'm like, I haven't woken up a new person yet. So how can I write this book? And then finally, in around 2019, I did feel like I had finally tapped into my talent in a way that I'd always been looking for and had figured out the career thing that made me feel motivated that I felt like, oh, I would do this even if I didn't need to make another dime for the rest of my life. I would keep writing these emails. I would keep writing to an audience and using that to make money. Or maybe I wouldn't use it to make money if I had all the money in the world, but I would still keep doing it. And that made me feel like, oh, I'm there. I have finally arrived in a certain sense, even though I'm still a hot mess of a human. Oh my gosh. There's so much I want to unpack about that, that I love. First, <laughs> firstly, I love that there's this concept we all have that it's got to be figured out or finished when like, it's not, um, yeah. a, it's a work in progress, but I, I think Cheryl Strayed is the one who said to me, the most wild thing about wild was just coming to be an acceptance of everything that she was right. Yeah. And it's like, Maybe that's the figuring it out is, uh, is learning to be with it. I also love though, that you did find this feeling of satisfaction come over you in 2019, this feeling of like, you know what, I've been looking and seeking this more or this someone needs to choose me thing, but I'm realizing I'm choosing myself here. Like I, mm-hmm. I actually like my day-to-day life. And that's so awesome. And I think those things can both be true. We can accept our, our brokenness and our self-sabotage and also find a way to be satisfied with, with certain things that we can allow them to be enough. Right. Um, what was it in 2019 that changed that you had that feeling for one, I finally, like I, I switched what I was doing. I pivoted in my business because I was doing mostly one-on-one copywriting services for people, which I liked, you know, it was great helping people with my talents, but I was still not 
making a living writing in my voice about whatever I wanted. And I kept fantasizing for years, like, if only I could make a living just writing my emails, because that was the part of my job that I enjoyed the most. Yeah, like just sitting on the couch and writing my emails or sitting wherever and feeling like this feeling of leisure, even while I was working. That was what I wanted, like doing the kind of work that made time pass without me noticing where I looked up and like the day is gone, but in the best possible way, because I was in the zone and working with clients didn't do that for me with clients. I would look at the clock being like, come on, like let's get to the one hour mark so I can be done. And this was the, the kind of writing that I just loved doing was writing for an audience, but as myself. So I pivoted to a business model that allowed me to do that by creating courses and a mastermind group. And I use my emails to still tell stories, but also sell those things. And so I was literally making money from my emails, from writing what I wanted to write. And that year I hit the $1 million mark in a year. And that was a big milestone for me. It was something I had always fantasized about. I fantasized about tens of millions of dollars, really, but it was a big deal for me. And I felt like a late bloomer hitting it in my 50th year, um, where I realized that most people in the world will never hit that milestone, but you and I are surrounded by people who hit it at in their 20s, in their early 30s, and again and again, and like get up to the tens of millions and have eight-figure businesses and teams. You know, I didn't want the kind of businesses they have. And so I did it my way and it felt really great to know like, oh, I can do this. Oh my God. And it's, it's so singular. I know so few people who can say, so I found what felt like leisure and made a million dollars doing that. And our mutual, very, very close friend, Susie Moore is always like, let it be easy. And I think we all have this thing that's been handed down, which is that you you have to work hard and and it has to feel, it has to feel like a struggle in order for you to feel even worthy of receiving anything. And to hear you say, like, I found a way to say, this is the stuff I really want to do. And for this audience to hear that that's a thing that you can do that. And, and you and I've had that conversation where, you know, that I don't subscribe to a business model that most people do either. And Laura right. was the one you said to me, you should, you should have a podcast called don't keep your webinar because you don't do <laughs> webinars and you don't do slideshows and you don't do funnels. You kind of just, you do what works for you, which for me, it's just, I just want to be present with people, create that intimacy and hang out. And at the end of that, if they want to hang out with me longer, that's the only way I I can do it. And I think it's cool for you to to show that to people because gosh, you said earlier in the string of things that you wanted to get over this idea of being lazy, but I think that so many people are over-functioning. What would you tell those people that you've learned that actually you have evidence that it works for you to not over-function? Yeah, I think that... First of all, laziness is something that I I try to get over it in the sense that the laziness that stands in my way, that is really not laziness so much, but it's fear dressed in pajamas, I like to say. It's resistance and the laziness that I embrace. So I think of laziness as like 
kind of like cholesterol, like there's good lazy and bad lazy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I have both of them. So the the bad lazy is what I wanted to get over. And the good lazy is something that I embrace. And I've found most people don't relate to or wish they had in them, which is the ability to just to relax and let things be easy, enjoy things being easy. I love nothing more than looking at my calendar and seeing blank space on it. That fills me with joy. And most women I talk to are filled with dread when they see that because they're like, I'm not busy enough. I'm not working hard enough. And they have a real work ethic, which speaks to what you were just talking about, of feeling like they're not worthy unless they're working really hard. And I've realized writing this and talking about this book that I've never, I'm unusual in that I've never located my self-worth in how hard I work. And I don't want to work hard. If someone says like, this program isn't for you, if you're afraid of hard work, I'm like, well, then it's not for me. (laughs) Um, I don't love hard work. I love going hard on work that feels easy. And so I would just say to people like, maybe hard work doesn't make you more worthy and embrace that feeling. Like if you are someone who identifies as lazy, it's probably a superpower in you that you are comfortable doing nothing or enjoying yourself, relaxing, not having to work nine, you know, 24 hours a day. I wonder if uh, there's some shout out to give to your parents here, because I know for myself, one of the things I've worked on in therapy, one of the things I've worked on is this uh, outsourcing of my earning love or earning by working Uh and achieving. And I think a lot of people, when they really go under the microscope are like, I'm an overachiever because I want to be worthy enough. Right. I want to deserve. Yes. And I feel like there must've been some message that you got that you didn't have to be a graduate of Harvard law school for your parents (laughs) to vote for you. Yeah. Um, it's true. Most people I know are chasing their parents' approval in some way, or one parent's approval, one or the other, or both. And my parents gave me their approval so freely, maybe to a fault. I think that they were proud of me just for breathing. And, you know, they put anything, any finger painting up on the fridge very proudly. We're always happy with my grades. I mean, I got good grades and I did worry too much about grades, but not to please them. And I think that if I got, you know, less than a great grade, they weren't worried. They weren't mad at me. You know, they might investigate it because it was a sign that they would blame the teachers, basically. Uh, So, but yes, they gave me unconditional love and approval. And although that didn't really instill the work ethic that some people (laughs) have, um, it instilled a a sense of worthiness. I've never felt like I have to earn love. Yeah. And I think, first of all, that just brought tears to my eyes. Second of all, I think that's why you are the kind of friend everyone wants, because we're all hoping to stop judging ourselves. And I think when people are around you, you're like, hotmess.com, like (laughs) what's going on? Like what's new? Tell me what else is new. Like there's just this way in which people set down these heavy burdens that they've been carrying for no reason because you're like, oh yeah, that's not even, why would you even try to win that race? It's not winnable, you know? So 
Let's talk a little bit more about the book. I feel like one of the ways that you do this so well, it's even in the, it's right in the title, but it's a through line in the book. People, especially women are such people pleasers. And I think it's so refreshing with a capital R that you're, you're not concerned about that in the same degree, right? You, you, you're willing to be like, no, I don't like you. No, I'm not a fan. Like, I'm not going to pretend that I am and then wait for the car to talk shit about you, right? <laughs> I'm just going to be honest and say, that doesn't work for me, right? Like, and I think there's so many moments that we all wish we could go back and just be authentic. And I feel like there's something so authentic about this book and the way you write it and who you are. And women are going to, it's going to be like the biggest book of the year because because women need that permission slip. So let's talk about that and how that comes up in the book and maybe what anecdote you want to share from the book where you are modeling that. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I think I, in a way I have been a people pleaser and there's a, there are a lot of examples of it in the book, especially with dudes, with boys, then with men. I spent a lot of time <laughs> saying yes when I meant no, because I didn't know how to say no. And I was always jealous, of, like there are whole chapters of the book where I attempt to get rid of people by basically by <laughs> granting them sexual favors. Like, well, that's the easiest way to get them not to call me again or bother me again is by being too easy um, rather than just saying no, beat it. And I was always so jealous of, I felt like it was something you only saw on TV, but a woman who would be like, beat it, fool. Like if somebody came on to them, are you flirting with me? This isn't going to happen. And I was like, how do you do that? How do you say that? Like, this isn't happening. Oh, I wanted to say that so badly sometimes. <laughs> so I was like, well, it's a guy I have to like, he has to like me. And I don't like being disliked. I very much want to be liked, but I think I do establish in the book that I talk myself down from that position regularly, like in the first chapter, which is called Deb Fishbone Likes This. And it's about me hate following my um, my bully from sixth grade, who mentioned. I talk about how really the worst thing that she did to me, well, she ruined my life. She stole my best friend in sixth grade and ruined my life that year, made going to school hell because she turned everybody against me, got me kicked out of my friend group. And then I had a creative writing assignment, a piece of fiction that was handed back to me. And I was holding it in the lunchroom and she grabbed it from me and started reading it aloud. She flipped right to the part that was most vulnerable. And it was about a girl named Liddy, not Laura, who went to a different private school in New York City, not mine. Um, it was clearly not nonfiction. And she started reading it out loud. And the, the passage she read was, I have good friends, but I feel like I'm losing them slowly. And she looked up at me and said, this is you. And I was like, it is not me. It's fiction. Duh. You don't even know what fiction is. Uh, she was like, no, this is you. And I felt so ashamed in that moment of being me and so unsafe. And so there was like a false lesson that I learned that I spent my life unlearning, unteaching myself, which is that it's not safe to be yourself and that one person disliking you can ruin your life. And so there are a lot of examples in the book of me, like kind of remembering that like one person 
disliking you can't ruin your life once you're an adult. In sixth grade, that is true. But when you're an adult, the key to life, the key to creativity, to business, to art, to any kind of self-expression that I value is being yourself and remembering that one person disliking you can't ruin your life and being willing to be disliked, even if it still stings. So, you know, a lot of time I have to deal with the sting of that and be willing to like, yeah. okay, they're not going to like me, but let me sit with it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't ruin my life. It's such a powerful point. And Susie, who I mentioned before, always says to me, it all goes back to Susie, but she says to me, it's not a problem that people don't like you because people right. will always not like you. You could be perfect and people will still find a reason not like you if, if they want to. She said, the problem is you thinking that's not supposed to happen. That's your problem, right? Right. And right. I think about Taylor Swift saying years ago that she turned off comments for a while on her social because she was getting hate. And it's just like, it's hilarious. It's like, there is no person right. who is going to be free of that. You know, there are people I've met who are like, I hate Seinfeld. And I'm just like, are you awake? Do you have ear holes? Like, how do you hate? <laughs> I get like, oh, it's not my favorite. Like, there's no way you hate that. Like you know, people are like, no, 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 I can't stand anything yeah. Jerry Seinfeld does. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's right. not really his problem though. You no, know, there's plenty not. of people that I don't like, and there's tons of, you know, music that I don't listen to and it's okay. Right. It's a democracy, but I feel like as women, especially we feel very threatened by that. It's like, yes, it is my job in life to please my way through this. And if there's one person who leaves a comment, I just can't recover from that. And that's just torture. That's really just torture. Yeah, exactly. It's so important to like, just remember, even I think it's a primordial part of our brain that feels the sting that yeah. like, I feel a, like a prickle of adrenaline. If yeah. somebody sends me <laughs> a nasty email, even anything critical, I really do like my face gets hot and I am immediately defensive. And, and I'm I like, totally who cares? Yeah. Who cares? This person, it's someone who doesn't even know me. Who's like, misinterpreted something I wrote or whatever yeah. and wants to criticize. I'm like, yeah. who cares? It doesn't matter. So in this book, when you were writing the book, what was the bravest thing you wrote? Like, cause we wouldn't necessarily know for you, what was the most authentic you felt you were being? What was the most brave? What moment in the book for you was the, am I really going to reveal this moment? I think Probably the chapter called He's Never Going to Leave Her about Harry Met being, Sally. <laughs> yes. The <laughs> Harry Met Sally line about being in a relationship for two and a half years with my married salsa instructor and living through him cheating on me, still staying with him, even though I found that out. I mean, really, I was the interloper in him. I hated his wife so much. I thought I made her out to be such a villain because she kept reaching out to me and threatening me. And he would say, our marriage is over. She's just living with me till she can get on her feet, et cetera. He would tell me all these lies. That what a sicko. Yeah. Yeah. He was a psychopath, but, but really, I don't think you, you probably don't follow Vanderpump rules. No, you know, but I know that you scandal. love good reality yes, TV. I do. <laughs> and right now, this year, there's been a, a thing called the Scandival, which is about Tom Sandoval um, cheating, <laughs> the scandal of him cheating on his girlfriend, really life partner of nine years with her best friend. And 
I relate a little bit to the best friend who's a really a homewrecker boyfriend stealer because of that episode of my life. That was what I was doing. And it felt like a thrill to win somebody's husband, even though they, you know, he claimed they were divorcing, they were separated. He would make fake phone calls in front of me to a divorce lawyer. Like when I dialed it back, it was like, this number has been disconnected. And that's all in there. So that to me, that was the most, probably the most courageous I felt writing that because I don't look very good in it. It was a, a pretty flawed thing to do. Um, so that's extremely does, it, brave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's interesting because I can hear my own self and I can hear my audience, you know, listening right now and being like, oh my God, that yeah. doesn't fall in the category of, you know, moral, you know, Mm-mm. you know, integrity. And what I also think we all have to check ourselves with is part of the reason we judge people is because we're unwilling to be honest about the things that we've done and we're judging ourselves, right? Because yeah, everybody is a liar. Like every <laughs> everybody at one point has said something, has something has come out of your mouth when you really meant something else. Like you were, yeah. you know, pleasing your way through it um, or whatever it is, or you've had the thought right? Even if you haven't acted on it, you've had the thought and you've judged yourself for having the thought. And I'm not, I'm not here to say like, it's amazing to do things that are unethical. Like that's obviously not what I'm saying, but I am saying that we all have what to just what to be honest with in ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes a really strong person to just come out and say, yeah, here's all the things about me that I'm not so proud of, but they're real. They happened. Yeah. And you know how freeing that is when you're just like, yeah, this is a, this is a thing. I mean, people ask me, I don't know if they ask me directly, but sometimes the the talk of like plastic surgery comes up and I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. I had a nose job when I was 16 and it's not even a good one. Um, (laughs) but I don't feel shame around talking about it because it's true. It's something that I did and it just is right. Sometimes things, they just are. (laughs) So, um, I think it's time that we all allow the honesty to come to light. Yeah. And by the way, I love when people reveal their plastic surgery in every form. Like I love the people out there who are like, oh yeah, I do it all. I got that, you know, that cheek thing done, the uh, whatever it is, buccal fat removal. I got this done. I got that done. I love hearing that because you're doing a real disservice to all of us women, especially us aging women. If you pretend that you haven't had a thing done and you've done it all. Yeah. It's amazing. Just the shame, you know, it's like yeah. the shame in people knowing anything that's real, which, right. which that's really exhausting, you know, like yeah. that's going to age you faster than anything else. Right. Yes, um, exactly. What are you hoping that women or men, whoever reads this, what are you hoping that will really stay with them after they read it? A feeling of relief in any of these forms, either. I didn't know you could talk about that right. publicly. Like I didn't know you could share those things about yourself. I didn't know you could write that way in like a conversational kind of revealing tone. Okay. I'm maybe I'm not behind in my life. I'm a late bloomer too. I guess there's nothing wrong with that. 
or I am a hot mess of a human and I guess I'm not alone. Everyone's pretending they're not, but it turns out we're all hot messes and thank God I'm not the only one. It's awesome. Honestly, that's like better medicine than any self-development book can give you really. (laughs) It's just like full on acceptance and the feeling that you're not alone. Um, You just talked about this idea that you're not a late bloomer and uh, Jason Mraz invited me to this like private party last week, which I felt legit, like so cool that I got to hang out with him and he played some of his new songs. And one of his new songs is we're just getting started. And he got divorced and then wrote this song, like, what is happening? Like, (laughs) I'm now in my 40s and starting over, but it's like, hang on. Like, if you think that you've seen everything there is to see, you haven't. If you think you've heard everything there is to hear, you haven't. Like, maybe you're just getting started. And I want to talk to you more about that and what that means to you. At my 40th birthday party several years ago, a friend of mine came up to me and he said something really nice to me. It's like the only thing I remember anyone saying at the whole party. And he said, you know, Kathy, you're turning 40. This is where it just begins. It's about to begin. And he said, remember that the Jews walked through the desert for 40 years before they entered the promised land. And I'm like, I I do. I don't think about that every day, but yes. And he's like, but that's, that's the metaphor is that all that you walked through is only now going to give you what you need to actually enter your real life. And that was so profound. That really stuck with me. And then I started to just see the evidence of that everywhere. Like in my own feeling of being comfortable finally in my skin or looking around at women in their forties and fifties who just really begin to show up, to actually be seen and to allow themselves to show up as they are. So what are some of the things you talk about in the book or what are some of the things you might want to share that help people know that it's not too late? I mean, I think my my career journey will really give them hope because, and as you're telling that story, which is so beautiful, like the 40 years, I'm thinking, oh, I would be the one Jew who took 50 years, who like <laughs> came, <laughs> came out, out of the other side of the desert after 50 years and being like, is everyone here? I made it um, because I really do feel like I took my time. I took a windy path to the kind of success that I wanted other people seem to move up and up and up and were able to, you know, climb the corporate ladder, which was when I entered the workforce, really the only path to success that I saw out there short of say, starting your own business, which wasn't something I was looking to do at all. I was never looking to do my business kind of happened by accident when I was around 40. And so I think all of that will give them hope that you can take that long and windy path and not be not hit the same milestones as other people, whether those are, you know, getting that job, getting promoted, making manager, then vice president, then CEO, or having kids, which is also something that I didn't do. And that's a whole chapter that I do hope will help people who are on the fence or didn't have kids or just don't feel motherly. So those things, or, you know, finding the one at the right time when you're supposed to. I mean, now the age where I found the one is doesn't feel 
old at all, but at the time it did. And I think that 20 years ago, it was a little bit older. I was 32 and we got married when I was 37 and my friends had all gotten married in their, you know, late twenties or early thirties. So I felt behind in that too. That's a big one. I feel like it's fascinating how the world loves to tell women what to do and when to do it. And I don't think men have that other than get a job, like other than make yeah. money, make money. The rest is on you. Like if you want to yes. get married at a certain age, great. If you want to have kids, don't do, if you want to have three wives, like it's with women, it's like, oh, okay. You, you're not married yet. Or when are you going to have the first baby? What do you have the second? Oh, oh, mm-hmm. you're, you're making a choice. Not what, what are you doing? Oh, you're having a surrogate. Oh, how does that like, there's yeah. so much opinion about what women do and when they do it. So say a little bit more about that. Like, what would you like women to know that might set them free around their choices? Well, I'm not going to say there's no wrong choice. If you, you know, if you choose the wrong people for you and stay right, right, that's, that's bad. So it's not that there's no wrong choice. Then again, if you take a detour by choosing the wrong person and that holds you up in your life, maybe you needed it. I think that I, I got into that relationship we were talking about as a way of putting off what I couldn't figure out. Like I couldn't figure out the career thing. I was in a creative rut. I didn't know what was next. And I didn't want to face the question of, should I have kids? I wasn't ready to face it yet. And so I got into a relationship that was a total detour that would take me off the road of life for a bit. And well, it worked, you know, I didn't have to face those things. So maybe the mistakes that you make, the detours you take, even if they don't feel right and they don't feel good to you, maybe you're doing it for a reason. Maybe it's useful to you in some way. I'm not saying go out and be with the wrong person or get into a job that you hate and knowing that you're going to be miserable there. But I'm saying if you do take those detours, don't feel shame about it. Don't feel like you have screwed up your life. Maybe you're actually doing the best thing for your life. I found that all the things I wasn't supposed to do have led me to where I am supposed to be. And that includes the year I spent like going out and after college and being a bar hoe, like one of the people I hoed around with ended up being the connection to meeting Stephen, my husband. I met like this guy who owned a bar who I, you know, hung around and just pined over after we had our one night thing and wasted my time with. He opened a restaurant years later and I met Stephen at his birthday party. And so, (laughs) and so all those nights that my parents were asking, what are you doing out till 4am? Is this really how you want to be spending your time? Don't you want to be getting into a job? Don't you like, I'd like to see you show some initiative, et cetera. I would just tell them, well, I'm networking. And it turns out that it was true. I was. It's awesome. And to quote another fantastic uh, writer and writing encourager, Julia Cameron, We had her on the podcast a second time recently, just like a month ago. And she gave me so much strength. And one of the things that she said a few different times was have a sense of humor, like stop taking Mm -hmm. it so seriously. And I feel like you 
are a great writer. So you have that in common with her. But I think that's also something you both have in common. When I think of you living your life, I'm like, Laura's probably on some walk right now, listening to some podcasts or boxering with her friends, or <laughs> she's like in the Hamptons on her way to go get like a really yummy breakfast, or she's reading something for fun that she really likes. But all of that to me is like, I just want to watch a movie every day about a girl who walks around (laughs) just letting herself be, you know what I mean? And it's like, that's you. And so much of this conversation is, is that it's have a little bit of lightness. Don't take it so seriously. And I feel like part of what just sucks the joy out of our lives is this constant analysis, this constant Mm -hmm. needing to prove it or write a defensive dissertation around all of our choices. It's like, oh my God. I mean, that is just the worst. It is just the worst. And what if, like, what if we could all just have a little bit of a sense of humor around this being human thing, this life thing, life is pretty lifey and, (laughs) you know, and then you can go, oh, that was an interesting thing I did, or that's not my favorite thing, or that was hilarious. But then there's, oh my gosh, doing that actually led me to meeting the man that I spent the rest of my life with. So I think that that's part of the permission I was talking about earlier that you give is please stop taking it so damn seriously. Yeah. I think people tend to put a a really serious almost grieving lens over things that have happened to them or things that they have done. And it's just not necessary or healthy. I mean, just the other day I had lunch with Stephen and a friend of ours that we hadn't seen in a long time. And I was on a time constraint. Like I had to get back for a podcast interview. And so I was kind of watching the clock and we had, we'd been sitting around gabbing for quite a while and had looked at the menu a couple of times and said, should I get the asparagus? Yeah, let's get the stracciatella, et cetera. And then at a certain point, I was like, crap, it's getting late. So I signaled the server. I was like, excuse me. Um, he came over and I was like, can we order some food? And Stephen's eyes grew wide. He looked at me with alarm and he was like, we just ordered. I was like, oh, I was here. I was here for that. And he was like, yes, we just sat here and ordered from this same person that you just called over. And he was like, here it goes, you know, early onset, time to put her in a home. And my our friend was like, are you okay? And I found it so funny. And I realized later that somebody else might be like, oh no, I'm not present in my life. You know, time to go to like a silent retreat for 10 days and train my brain to be more present. I'm like, yeah, I'm not present. I have what's called book brain. I'm like leading up to the publishing of this book and I am not especially present, but I find it funny. I find it funny too. And (laughs) I love your sense of humor. And it's interesting because you and I have talked about how for whatever the reason, when we look around, we are in a minority and we're Jews. So we're definitely a minority, but we always talk about how, like, there's not that many Jewish people in our world, like who do what we do. And I want to like, you know, shine a little light on that for a second, because (laughs) I mean, I think there's something very Jewish 
about your sense of humor. I mean, you did grow up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, mm-hmm. but what do you think that that does give you? Or what do you think your Judaism sort of adds flavor to in your work or in your life? Maybe it's a little bit of gallows humor because we have we have come from suffering so much. And how else do you survive it without a sense of humor? So I, I think that that's what I bring to it. I've always been drawn to to darkness and kind of found it funny. And then other than that, I mean, it's true. I was pretty I'm pretty steeped in Jewish humor. My dad's like the bookshelves in my parents' apartment where I grew up are still lined with books like The Joys of Yiddish, 101 Jewish Jokes. I remember my dad like opening to a page and reading like a a joke that he couldn't get to the end of because he was laughing so hard about like, you know, hey, look at the schmuck on that camel. And it's just that's the punchline, but he couldn't get to it. I totally relate. We had all of those books and we listened to those old Jewish records like Joe and Paul and all those. I knew every line of the 2000 year old man when I was five years old, I could stand up and quote <laughs> Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. I, I watched the show of shows. Like my parents knew what to sort of show me was the most important works of art. And I know that Woody Allen has been canceled for, for his <laughs> life choices, but Annie Hall, you know, helped create so much of my worldview. And one of the things that he says in, in other movies and, and in other times is that comedy is tragedy plus time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why so many of the great comics are Jews, because we sort of are observing all the time. We don't quite belong, but we, yeah. we're, we're, we're belonging adjacent. So there's that. So we can have a commentary. <laughs> and then there's so much tragedy that the only possible way to keep going is to find humor. And in so many ways, that's really what we've talked about, you know, is all of the things that we've talked about are painful. You know, what happened with the salsa teacher, what happened in seventh grade, Mm -hmm. these are painful things. And the best way really for us all to be able to gather and have enough strength to sit and talk about it is by getting the lessons and using a lot of humor. And this book really is, is funny, but it's very important. Like, that's my point is that these are really important things that we all should be sharing that we all should be talking about. And thankfully you happen to be very witty. And so you have found a way to give us the lesson in a really joyful experience. Thank you. That is the nicest thing anyone could ever say about my book. Um, If you don't mind popping that into Amazon reviews. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us, we have uh, five more minutes here. Tell us where people can get it, but also some of the pre-orders and some of the fun Mm. bundles. Cause I know you made all these cute bonuses, like this video where you do like a deep dive, like who doesn't want to watch you on video. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Okay. So Tough Titties comes out on June 13th. And until then, I'm offering some incredible bonuses, including the intro chapter, which is an instant download. And you can dive in right now. And people love the intro, which I didn't even want to write. And then people like write to me that it was life-changing in itself. Mm -hmm. And then I have some brand new courses that I've created just for this, which one of them is called Story Goldmine Live. And I walk you through how to write a story, whether it's for email, your content, anywhere in your life and how to connect it to a call to action. And then another course called Unputdownable, which is 
binge worthy storytelling lessons and secrets from the pages of tough titties. And then also the thing you were referring to was a deep dive into my book journey. It's a, a behind the scenes or I call it behind the titties call replay. And um, people love that, like from the inception of it, like how did I come up with the title, with the theme, what chapters, how did I know what to leave in, what to cut? Et cetera, et cetera. And how did I get the book deal and all of that? Okay. So OMG, really valuable. exclamation <laughs> point, exclamation point. I know that I get to be sort of on this privilege list because I'm a podcaster and we're friends. And so you're sending me like the official advanced copy and I'm still, and you can't stop me. I'm still going to go pre-order it because I want all of that stuff. And I mean it, I'm very dead serious. I, I don't know that my audience remembers. If you don't remember, you should go back and look at the other episodes we've done with Laura. We'll put them in yeah. the show notes, but to get a course from you, just one of those courses is everything. And for any of you who want to not only be a great dinner guest, but also would like to build an empire, learning how to authentically show up and write copy is so important. And there's nobody better to learn from than you. So if you can get all of that for just buying a book, you should run, like literally run and go get it. And I'm imagining where would you want to send them to? Do you want to send them to Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Mm. indie bookstores? I want to send you to any of those places and they are all listed and linked on my page, toughtittiesbook.com toughtittiesbook.com. You'll find the info about the bonuses, um, a form to fill out once you've made your purchase so that you can get those bonuses. And that's where to go. It's all right there. You're so, so, so generous to do all of those things. No, truly like one of those things would be Dianu, but like you did them all. (laughs) And it's so impressive. Like I can't believe, especially this quote unquote, lazy person did all of this for us just to buy the book. I have no doubt it's, it will be such a smash success. And then there will be 15 people who want to option it for a TV show. Mark my words. We just have to find the cutest girl who would play you. That's my last question. Who would you want that to be? You know, it used to be Drew Barrymore when both of us were young enough to play young me. But now I, I have no idea. But I feel like there's something about her that would make a good Laura. Yeah, she's got that. And I also feel like you could have been in My Cousin Vinny. Obviously, you look like Marissa Tomei. Marissa Tomei, yes. Everyone tells you that, like every day of your life? Yeah, they used used to. I haven't heard it in a while, but um, yeah, that was the one. This was so, so, so much fun. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love it. We will definitely be spreading the word. And I can't wait. Thank Thank you, you, Kathy. I love you so much. You're the best. Have a great day. I always love hanging out with Laura and here are the takeaways. Number one, hard work doesn't make you more worthy. Sometimes laziness can be a superpower. It means you're comfortable doing nothing or enjoying yourself. It's the ability to just relax and let it be easy. Number two, the key to life, to creativity, to business, to art, to any kind of self-expression is being yourself. Be willing to be disliked even if it still stings. Remember that one person disliking you can't ruin your life. Number three, it's time that we allow the honesty to come to light. Number four, you're not behind in life. You're just getting started. This is what it is to just begin. All that you walk through is going to give you what you need to actually enter your real life, which starts now. Number five, have a little bit of lightness. Don't take everything so seriously. Number six, the best way to be able to gather and have enough strength to sit and talk about the painful times is by getting the lessons and using a lot of humor. Number seven, maybe the mistakes that you made, the detours that you took are for a reason. Don't feel ashamed about it. Don't feel like you have screwed up your life. Maybe you're actually doing the best thing for yourself. The things you think you aren't supposed to do will lead you to where you're supposed to be. 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you had fun. I hope that you enjoyed this. I hope that it was helpful and made you feel less alone or gave you some feeling of reassurance. We have so many good episodes. So please follow us along with Manifest with Kathy Heller on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, wherever you're listening, because we don't want you to miss out. We want you to be part of this community. And if you feel so inclined, please leave me a review. Go ahead, leave a review because it helps so much and it helps for other people to find the show. And if you can think of one person you know who would enjoy today's episode, then please do us a huge favor and share it because maybe they would find that that was really a favor to them because maybe they'll love this episode and they'll say, oh my gosh, I have a new podcast that I want to binge. So you can text them the link or you email them the link or you can post about it on your Instagram. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you soon.